In Britain, the first half of the 19th century saw a change in the way human difference was perceived. A renewed focus on empiricism drove the development of a host of new human sciences, such as comparative anatomy, physiology, paleontology, phrenology, and racial taxonomy. By the 1850s, polygenetic theories of race based on the notion of separately evolved, biologically distinct, and hierarchically organisable species of human beings mounted a significant challenge to the established monogenetic position as earlier codified by figures such as Buffon and Linnaeus. However, while these new ideas emerged during a period in which science was becoming increasingly professionalised, they were not confined to the intellectual vacuums of the universities or royal societies. Working class and radical intellectuals, keen to equip themselves better to promote domestic political reform and social improvement, were particularly early adopters and especially active participants in negotiating these new methods of constructing meaning. Radical periodicals acted as conduits for the popularisation of scholarly debates over the merits and demerits of this new uh, type of racism. Inevitably, the way these ideas were presented by radicals was inflected by the related and coeval movement for the abolition of slavery in the British West Indies. In this paper, I want to focus on how radical intellectuals in England thought about race and slavery when slaves tried to free themselves by force. I will focus on the years surrounding uh, the major slave insurrections in Barbados in 1816, Demerara in 1823, and Jamaica in 1831 2. I've chosen this approach not because British radicals in general dwelt especially on these instances of Labour led rebellion, but because these events raised questions surrounding political identity, slavery, and race, which many commentators felt compelled to answer. So scholars have tried in vain to settle the question of what 19th century radicals really thought should be done about slavery. Uh, some have suggested that the early affinity shared by abolitionism and reform in the 1780s and 90s inspired a new generation of radical leaders with ultra and anti-slavery sympathies well into the new century. Others have highlighted consistent hostility towards the enslaved populations of the Caribbean among British radicals from the 1780s all the way up uh, to the Chartist period. More recently, social historians of British abolitionism have come down somewhere in the middle, acknowledging the fractured, fractious and discontinuous progress of both the anti-slavery and domestic reform movements. The question of race in early 19th century English radicalism has received far less scholarly attention, but such that exists similarly stresses the heterogeneity of radical approaches. In any case, much more work remains to be done. Um, excuse me, in any case, much more work remains to be done on how working people thought about race. Radical biography is sometimes just as susceptible to hagiographies as the establishment histories. Um, which perhaps helps to explain why, for example, William Cobbett's virulent and entrenched racism is only occasionally acknowledged and hardly ever fully explored. At the same time, the charismatic ultra-radical, I can see, yep. <laughs> Robert Wedderburn, um, was a central figure in mobilising uh, plebeian anti-slavery sentiment during the period, but he has only assumed his fair share of visibility in scholarly literature relatively recently. So it's clearly problematic to attempt to affix to early 19th century radicalism any kind of homogenous, 
position on questions of race and slavery. What follows then is an exploration of how scientific racism was adapted, adopted or challenged by various metropolitan radical intellectuals in the context of armed slave rebellions in the British Caribbean. It becomes possible to chart, I suggest, the emergence and consolidation of a specifically working class racism in some of the radical literature of this period. This particular type of racism opposed the interest of black enslaved people to those of the white English working class in an attempt to stabilise an emerging proletarian social identity and legitimise their own claims to meaningful political representation. Though this working class racism partially predates formalised pseudoscientific racism, it was nonetheless characteristically scientific and systematic in nature. Attacking the abolitionist position and in some cases promoting pro-slavery, a number of radical writers promoted discrimination against black people based on their perceived biological and moral inferiority. For these figures, slave insurrection demonstrated that the enslaved neither deserved the attention of the British philanthropists, excuse me, of British philanthropists, nor were they physically able to properly appreciate it. In this model, money and attention would have been better spent on the equally exploited but biologically superior white working class in Britain. Uh, however, for balance, uh, the development of this strand of working class racism should not blind us to the undoubtedly central radical contribution, uh, simultaneous contribution to anti-racist and abolitionist discourse embodied by Wedderburn's contribution to extra-parliamentary abolitionism. The son of an enslaved black woman and Scottish slave owner, uh, Wedderburn consistently challenged the new racial ideologies of the early 19th century and defended the egalitarian ideas, ideals of post-French revolutionary Britain. Taken alongside the work of prominent radical racial figures like Cobbett on the left there and Richard Carlyle, who we'll come to later, Wedderburn's work demonstrates that working class political print culture proved a key battleground for complex and competing ideas about human difference. So, Barbados. <clears throat> um, the insurrectionary discourse of early 19th century British radicalism was seldom geographically discreet. Whether imaginary or recounted, localised violent uprisings against state-supported oppression were most often situated in national, international or global context. This was done either to induce the impression of imminent and widespread revolution for the purposes of galvanising nascent radical tendencies into direct political activity, or merely uh, to add a sense of millenarian portent to more prosaic reformist polemic. Slave uprisings, perhaps most pronounced examples of exploited workers attempting to wrest control from a morally corrupt financial and political elite, were no exception. For example, in 1817, in his radical periodical, The Axe Laid to the Root, Wedderburn issued a stark warning to the slaveholders of Jamaica. I'll read it, I'll read it. The, the island of Jamaica will be in the hands of the blacks within 20 years. Prepare for flight, ye planters, for the fate of St. Domingo awaits you. Recollect the fermentation will be universal. They will slay man, woman, and child, and not spare the virgin whose interest is connected with slavery, whether black, white, or tawny. Oh, ye planters, you know this has been done. The cause which produced former bloodshed still remains. Of necessity, similar effects must take place. 
So Wedderburn was at great pains to call to mind the successful slave uprising in Saint-Domingue in this passage. But the black-on-white violence he uh, imagined also recalled a far more recent insurrection which had taken place in Barbados in April the preceding year, new details of which were still surfacing in the mainstream British press. Busser's Rebellion, as it became known, was a relatively large-scale uprising in which over 400 enslaved men and women, avoiding direct conflict with the colonial authorities, destroyed a fifth of Barbados's sugarcane crop through arson. The Royal Navy was called in to suppress the uprising in the following, uh, and in the following weeks and months, hundreds of uh, rebel slaves were executed or deported. In Britain, the Morning Post's reporters, for example, wrote of a perfidious league of slaves pillaging and destroying the buildings and generally pursuing a system of devastation which has seldom been equaled. In Parliament, the West Indies' interests linked the uprising uh, to the slavery registration bills introduced by William Wilberforce and James Stephen in 1815. The bills, uh, which were intended as a first small step towards eventual emancipation, were ultimately rejected in Lords after the rebellion. Opinion pieces in the popular press in the wake of Barbados deployed a racialised discourse which suggested that the, and I quote, that the natural indolence and ferocity of the passions of the Negroes made the uprising inevitable. Um, given such uh, irresponsible encouragement. In short, the immediate effect of the Barbados uprising in Britain was to diminish abolitionist agitation and galvanise the pro-slavery lobby, for whom the rebellion was merely a manifestation of black slaves' inherently violent nature. So Wedderburn's uncompromising deployment of slave rebellion as a totem of, totem of proletarian resistance was therefore both risky and quite unusual as well as prefiguring the later radical emphasis on uh, self-improvement, his insistent appeals to collective memory and experiential learning, you know this has been done, recollect the fermentation will be universal and so on, situated an imaginary future slave rebellion in the continuous present of a well-publicised and topical colonial experience. In the context of Buss's rebellion, his point was quite clear. Jamaican revolution, as anybody who cared to look at what was happening elsewhere in the Caribbean could see, had already begun. However, by 1817, when this was published, it would have been clear to Wedderburn's uh, largely British readership that the uprising in Barbados had been crushed brutally by the colonial authorities. This necessitated submerging the example of the Barbadian revolt, the most recent episode in a continuous history of armed slave resistance, beneath that of the successful insurrection in Saint-Domingue. It was, after all, insufficient to warn planters that the fate of Barbados awaited them while the Barbadian plantocracy doubled down on its regime of slave oppression and popular support for abolition in Britain was on the wane. So Wedderburn's support for the rights of slaves to take their own freedom was not shared by all radicals. Um, as Marcus Wood has discussed, William Cobbett, that's in a tiny picture of William Cobbett there, um, the work was representative. So William Cobbett's work was representative of a strain of radical thought that defined the Caribbean slave as a personification of the opposite of British liberty. As early as 1804, Cobbett had worked against the, pop, uh, the current of popular radicalism to claim that humanitarian attention afforded to the slaves in the West Indies drew attention, uh, energy and resources away from the plight of exploited urban working class British people. In the aftermath, in the aftermath of Buss's rebellion, his anti-abolitionist discourse began to draw on racist hierarchies of character and moral capacity. 
in a pointed open letter about the Barbados uprising addressed to Wilberforce in 1817, he claimed, It was notorious that the Negroes were in a state of profound ignorance. It was notorious that they had no such thing as moral sentiment. It was notorious that, though susceptible to the vindictive feelings which, uh, with which you and your tribe endeavoured to fill their breasts, they were incapable of justly valuing the benefits which they derived from the care and protection of their masters. <clears throat> Here are traces of the systematic racism that were to characterise much working-class writing about slavery in the 1820s were already visible. Cobbett had created a racial taxonomy of innate intellectual characteristics in which the profound ignorance of the Negroes was uh, seen not as a cause but an effect of their lacking natural moral sentiment. Cobbett's descriptions here sought to popularise the notion that enslaved people could feel vindictive towards planters in an instinctive or primal way, but did not have access to higher functions of rational judgment, the ability to justly value the supposed benefits of being enslaved. Slave resistance in this model emerged then not from a desire for political enfranchisement, as Wedderburn had suggested, but as the result of a natural uh, racial inferiority. So what was new about this type of racist discourse? Um, an important differentiating factor between this and more nebulous forms of racial thought encountered during the 18th century was the explicit use of uh, black humanity as a comparator against which uh, innate white, specifically working-class intellectual and moral superiority could be claimed. Working-class British people, politically disenfranchised by an unreformed parliament, economically exploited by expanding industrialisation, and socially atomised by ongoing urbanisation, sought to shore up their precarious claim to national belonging by defining themselves negatively against racial outsiders. Uh, in the 18th century, as Draw Warman and Roxanne Wheeler have uh, suggested, ideas around, waste, uh, around race excuse me, had focused on cultural signifiers of difference. But in the early 19th, they came to rely increasingly on um, biological or, 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 or natural um, philosophy language. Working class racism was profoundly inflected by an antipathy towards the parliamentary anti-slavery movement and the arch-conservative evangelical Wilberforce in particular. Arguments over the proper distribution of humanitarian attention and resources thus quickly became framed in reference to the uh, supposed biological inferiority of black slaves to uh, white wage slaves. While this did not necessarily uh, preclude a limited form of sympathy for the plight of enslaved people, it did prefigure some of the most persistent strands of later pseudoscientific racial thought. Again, Cobbett uh, depended on notions of uh, inherited hierarchy in his letters to Wilberforce. So this is Cobbett's Wilberforce again. Um, this argument was used. It was the mind, you said. It was the consciousness of his being a slave. This was the dreadful evil. Now, sir, I wish by no means to underrate this suffering, even in the mind of the grossly ignorant Negro, who rises even in mental capacity, generally speaking, not many degrees above that of numerous inferior animals. But while your feelings are so acute upon this subject, you appear to be as dead as a stone to the feelings of the intelligent and ingenious people of England. Cobbett located black humanity in a loose hierarchy somewhere between the inferior animals and the intelligent and ingenious British working classes. The lasting gratitude uh, that he went on to say they would show in return for Wilberforce's attention, 
contrasted sharply with the incapacity for justly valuing the benefits of slavery as supposedly demonstrated by the rebellious uh, Barbadian slaves. Even in the 1810s, uh, quasi-systematic racism in the radical milieu was not confined to anti-abolitionist rhetoric. As Chris Poskett has demonstrated, and I think Chris Poskett spoke at UCL last Wednesday uh, on this, um, the axiomatic pairing of pseudoscientific racism exclusively with pro-slavery discourse in the 19th century is a product of the Whig teleological imagination. Indeed, Richard Hussey's work shows how racism and anti-slavery rhetoric later went hand-in-hand in underpinning the British colonial project in the African interior. While racist thought in British working-class culture emerged in many cases in tandem with hostility towards abolition, it was therefore possible for radical intellectuals to oppose slavery while at the same time attesting to uh, the inferiority of black people in the comparative fashion that I've just outlined. So, for example, while he was uh, broadly sympathetic to their aims, uh, the leading radical, Major John Cartwright, nevertheless accused parliamentary abolitionists of acting as African patriots who should have been focusing on domestic issues instead. Addressing a reformers' rally in London in June 1816, he suggested precisely how the campaigning tools of abolition should be turned to the advantage of the white working class. So this is Cartwright. The whole solution of their sympathy you have in Mr. Wedgwood's medallion of an imploring Negro in chains inscribed, Am I not a man and a brother? But to parliamentary patriots of England... Is not an Englishman somewhat more than an African Negro? Let, some, let, excuse me, let such patriots then imagine the medallion of an indignant Englishman, not in the crouching attitude of a kneeling supplicant, but erect and thus apostrophizing, are we not joint heirs of the same inheritance? And is that inheritance in the hands of robbers? Cartwright's suggestion reveals as much about abolitionist representations of slave agency and dignity as it does about working class identity. In his proposed medal, the distinction of uh, power between the object and subject of sympathy, the distance between the viewer and the kneeling supplicant, was levelled. The English labourer, standing erect and dignified, demanded empathy. Cartwright's new slogan invoked a mythological and fictitious English inheritance of political freedoms and overwrote the Africans' claim to common humanity with an assertion of shared national interests common to all Britons, given, of course, that they met the essential and as yet ineffable criterion of being somewhat more than an African. Uh, so, moving on to Demerara. Despite their moves towards systematising racial hierarchies in the late 1810s, then the working-class racism epitomised by Cobbett and Cartwright was still away from the mid-19th century certitudes of scientific racism. However, the 1820s witnessed a general change in attitude uh, for British radicalism. Once dismissed as a quescient time for proletarian activism, the 1820s is now recognised as the period in which a distinctive, coherent, plebeian intellectual scene crystallised in Britain. This so-called March of the Mind was characterised by a shift away from the rough-and-ready, tavern-based, plebeian debating culture of the Peterloo years and towards the pursuit of respectability, sobriety, rational self-improvement, religious scepticism and the early adoption of new modes of political and scientific thought. 
All of these pursuits were folded into a new urban working class political consciousness, which has been seen by some as undergirding the popularisation of liberal individualism and by others as encouraging early socialism. Um, maybe it did both. Um, <laughs> in terms of working class racial ideology, this period saw positions become increasingly polarised. For some, rationalism highlighted the illogical nature of the racism that underpinned plantation slavery. Others explicitly adopted new scientific means of human classification early and with especial vigour. Some of these preoccupations crystallise into elements of racist thought uh, that have proved particularly tenacious and long-lasting. So with a notable exception of Cobbett, who uh, in 1823 denounced the Demerara uh, slave rebellion in kind of Burkean um, racist terms, anti-revolutionary and racist terms, um, this environment, so with the exception of that, of Cobbett, this environment produced relatively understanding responses to the insurrection in Demerara in April 1823, at least in print culture aimed primarily at a broad um, readership. The uprising was substantially larger in scale than Buss's rebellion, though a similarly negligible number of planters were killed by slaves, and the colonial authorities responded in similarly disproportionate fashion. While it hardly radicalised the parliamentary abolitionist movement, the Demerara uprising altered the character of public discourse in Britain on the issue of emancipation. The perfidious League of Slaves, who appeared in the mainstream press in the wake of the Barbados, Barbados Rebellion, had, by October 1823, been replaced by a group of merely unfortunate men. In short, the Demerara uprising emboldened the parliamentary arm of the British emancipationist movement to more openly support a gradualist position and generally softened popular attitudes towards rebelling slaves in the West Indian colonies. So uh, Bell's Life in London, uh, a sensationalist sort of tabloid-style newspaper with a broadly pro-reform editorial stance, summed up the national mood with a sarcastic response uh, to a letter it had received from an outraged Demerara planter. Had Englishmen been forced into bondage, it would have been meritorious to have obtained their freedom. But for Negroes to affect to possess the common feelings of humanity, whose skins are black as coal? Oh, monstrous. Bell's maintained this explicitly anti-racist position throughout the protracted period of debate and recriminations following the uprising. Reporting on an emergency meeting of prominent slave owners held on the 15th of February 1824, the editor attacked uh, the racist suppositions underlying the arguments that they made there uh, against um, abolition. Dare they assert that the quality of mind is confined to a particular class of human beings? Are they prepared to prove that colour alone forms a contrast in intellect and that the influence of education would be lost upon a people whose degradation and whose lives are in their hands merely because their skin is of a darker hue than their own? Do they mean to tell us that, according to the colour of the skin, the feelings of the heart and the intellectual powers of the mind are regulated? Such propositions are unworthy of a reply. Now, this report, specifically this report, made quite an impression on uh, the mind of Robert Wedderburn. The following week, he wrote into the paper to thank the editor, John Bell, uh, for writing the article. 
To illustrate the evils of plantation slavery at the individual level, he, wanted, he went on to share the story of how his father, James Wedderburn, uh, had ra raped, flogged, and sold his enslaved and pregnant mother uh, in Jamaica. When it was published, this letter prompted a response from Wedderburn's slave-owning white paternal half-brother, Andrew Colville, who threatened to sue Bell if it was not published. And Andrew Colville was a slave owner with significant um, investments in human property. Uh, in, 18, uh, in, in, in the slave compensation records, he received over £20,000, um, so for a, a very significant sum. That was in 18, 1838 money. So, um, so uh, John Bell did publish Colville's letter, but it was accompanied by a lengthy and derisive commentary. The following week, Wedderburn responded to Colville once again. Robert Wedderburn responded to Colville once again, challenging him to show fight before the knobs at Westminster and declaring his intention to publish a full account of their father's behaviour. This exchange constituted the inspiration for and over half the substantive content of Wedderburn's autobiography and best-known work, The Horrors of Slavery, published later that year, 1824. This is one of the most powerful and uncompromising attacks on the slave system to be produced in Britain during the entire abolitionist period. Um, a detailed, indignant, personal account of the physical and sexual violence inherent in plantation slavery. And it remains one of the cornerstone texts of early black British writing. So while it doesn't engage explicitly with the issues of racial hierarchy beyond uh, the obvious um, discussions of, of slavery... Uh, when we revisit this kind of um, meta-history of, of the book's production, um, it demonstrates in a very tangible sense that it, it actually emerged from, the dialogue, uh, from a dialogue with debates over both slave rebellion and um, contemporaneous ideas about race. So this anti-racist, anti-slavery perspective among British radicals in the aftermath of the Demerara uprising was relatively consensual. However, it was not to last. As the march of the mind continued, some radical intellectuals became increasingly committed to hierarchical models of human difference. Uh, Richard Carlyle, a leading figure in the popular reform movement of the 1820s and 30s, uh, and a long-time collaborator of Wedderburn's, um, was also one of the most trenchant ideological racists of the early 19th century. Like Cobbett, much of Carlyle's anti-abolitionism was bound up in antipathy towards the well-to-do evangelical parliamentary anti-slavery movement, especially uh, Wilberforce, again. This stemmed as much from Carlyle's staunch support for religious free-thinking deism and atheism as it did from Wilberforce's patronising attitude towards working-class morality. In February 1828... In his radical weekly periodical, The Lion, Carlyle published the memoir of uh, this man, Robert Blinko, who had worked as a child labourer in a cotton mill near Nottingham. Blinko's story, Carlyle claimed, typified the hypocrisy of Wilberforce's uh, telescopic philanthropy uh, for the enslaved in, in the West Indies. This is Carlyle. The, the religion and black humanity of Mr. Wilberforce seem to have been entirely of a foreign nature. Pardon is begged if an error is about to be wrongfully imputed, but the publisher has no knowledge that Mr. Wilberforce's humane advocacy for slaves 
was ever of that homely kind as to embrace the region of the home cotton slave trade. And yet, who shall read the memoir of Robert Blinko and say that charity towards slaves should not have begun or ended at home? This comparison and the language in which it had been framed was becoming increasingly common by the late 1820s. Exploited factory workers, especially children, were increasingly referred to in this context as white slaves or wage slaves. This did not always denote a pro-slavery stance, but as calls for reform and improvement of working-class living and working conditions increased, so too, it seems, did radical antipathy towards a formal abolitionist movement. So lurking just beneath the surface of many of these comparisons was an increasingly systematic racialized approach to human classification. In Carlyle's case, his racism, like his anti-abolitionism, was bound up in his hatred of the clergy and organized religion. Indeed, it was in reportage about Christian missionaries going to Africa that his racial discrimination took on its most violently bigoted articulacy. Is not the saving of a white soul at home as good as that of a black soul abroad, he asked? And why not send missionaries to the monkeys of South America? Who is to say to what grade of animals the soul extends, or where the human species ends and that of the monkey begins? Some beings, called human, are lower in character than a portion of the beings called monkeys. Though this querying of African humanity in relation to apes is now depressingly familiar to scholars of 19th century anthropological writing, in the 1820s it was a characteristically modern aspect of radical rationalist thought. Carlyle was articulating cutting-edge racist theory for a mass working-class market. This was British biological polygenism in vitro. Of course, Carlyle was careful to sign off this report with a complaint that situated his racism firmly within the discourse of contemporaneous political radicalism and religious skepticism. And he said, if this distribution and teaching of the Bible be a charity, like other charities, it should begin at home. So while the trope of working class victimhood characterised much popular radicalism from the period, Carlyle repeatedly returned to perceived comparative racial characteristics to highlight what he saw as the hypocrisy underpinning Christian missions to Africa. So uh, later, you know, if it be necessary to send missionaries to any part of Africa, he wrote uh, a year later in 1829, it's necessary to send them to the baboons who are as near to humanity as the Negroes or as many animals who are found among the herd of mankind in Christendom, and even in England. Here the ironic allusion to the herd of mankind threatens to obscure both Carlyle's English exceptionalism and the specificity with which he targeted Africans for his comparison with animals. That phrase, even in England, assumed an inherent superiority which was being prevented from being realised by religious superstition, unabashed class stratification and political corruption. The nominal comparisons between African humanity, animal spiritual potential, and English natural or inherited superiority could only emerge in the context of a rapidly rigidifying structure of explicitly racial categorization. <clears throat> uh, it should perhaps come as no surprise that Carlyle was also an early and ardent advocate of the pseudosciences of phrenology and physiognomy, and that these two were incorporated into his vision for political reform in Britain. Repeatedly, he argued that animal nature was phrenologically or organically and chemically constituted and physiognomically indicated. 
and that rather than depending on religion, understanding these new sciences was essential to the establishment of a correct moral philosophy for working British people. Phrenology, he claimed, provided the proper rules to make proper matches between the sexes in marriage and parentage, and his outline for creating the next generation of reformers relied upon the sexual matches made with the utmost phrenological, physical and mental equality. The new sciences of human differentiation then lay at the heart of one major branch of the self-improving reformist project of the 1820s. So Jamaica, 1831-2. Radical attitudes towards both slave insurrection in the early 1830s and the imminent abolition of slavery uh, may be assessed by reading Wedderburn's final published tract, An Address to Lord Broom and uh, Vokes. This text, published a few months before the massive slave uprising in Jamaica in December 1831, the title page of it, has not, as far as I know, been examined before anywhere in modern scholarship. Uh, so it's worth spending a few minutes here examining some of its specific points on slavery and resistance. Actually, before I do that, I should point out that uh, um, my article on this, uh, specifically on this publication, has just gone online on the Slavery and Abolition website. So you should, and it includes a, a full transcript of this um, late Robert Wedderburn. Uh, text that has not been seen, I don't think, by anybody yet. So Wedderburn's final printed work represented a remarkable and disturbing reassessment of his position on slavery and its abolition. The fiery articles of the Acts laid to the root, fueled by the insurrectionary zeal of the Barbados uprising, saw a slave red rebellion in Jamaica, a revolution rather, in Jamaica as both desirable and necessary. Uh, the Horrors of Slavery, published in the wake of the Demerara <coughs> uprising, amid a vitriolic personal spat between Wedderburn and his slave-owning half-brother, illustrated the evils attendant on the continuation of slavery, inferring, if not directly stating, that its parliamentary abolition was at hand. The Address, on the other hand, represented, if anything, an unusually moderate viewpoint on emancipation, at times even positing anti-abolitionist sentiments. So after giving a brief biographical sketch, Wedderburn set out his position. I have always considered, he wrote, that the condition of slaves was far superior to that of European labourers and therefore could never hold up my hand to support those ignorant fanatics who were so frequently troubling Parliament with petitions against slavery. This is Robert Wedderburn um, talking, very out of character. Um, this might seem to mirror Carlyle's earlier statements regarding Wilberforce's supposed neglects of the rights of British labourers, but Wedderburn went on to advertise his own equitable plan for the emancipation of the slaves in terms that could hardly be more at odds with the anti-establishment principles that underpinned all of his earlier work. Uh, Wedderburn went on to present a comprehensive ameliorationist argument, absolutely rejecting the by then conventional abolitionist position of immediate emancipation. Remarkably for such a committed opponent of slavery, much of his arguments echoed the paternalism of the pro-slavery lobby. So for Wedderburn, slaves' exclusion from owning personal property shielded them from the worst uh, difficulties faced by the European labourers. In a state of slavery, there is no seizing for rent or taxes, no casting into prison for debt, 
No starving families obligated to destroy themselves or their offspring for want of provision, excepting in a few instances no separation of relatives takes place. In war or peace there is no alteration in the situation of the slaves. No remorse for crimes, that being unknown to them, as slavery does not admit of such, their time being fully occupied with work and they being amply provided with everything necessary for their comfort. Like a number of contemporaneous pro-slavery advocates, Wedderburn's support for the continuation of slavery was predicated on the notion that slaves would be less comfortable and secure in the event of immediate emancipation. The amelioration of conditions for slaves, Wedderburn insisted, rather than the abolition of the slave system, would be to the benefit and safety of the proprietors as well as to the advantage of the overseers and bookkeepers. To that end, he suggested enforcing new colonial legislature, allowing slaves to buy their own freedom and to protect them economically and juridically once freed. These measures, he claimed, needed to be enforced unilaterally across all the West Indian colonies, since I know well the danger there is in a slave on one estate having more liberty or encouragement than his fellow in a neighbouring plantation, which would be liable to create jealousy and rebellion. And if you think about what he said about the Barbados Rebellion in 1816, this is, this is quite a reassessment of um, his approach to, to slave uh, uprisings. <clears throat> so thus the spectres of the slave upring, uprisings in uh, Saint-Domingue, Barbados and Demerara, which had been so closely at issue in the production of his earlier work, were now deployed in building a position which was simultaneously anti-slavery and anti-abolitionist. If this perspective seems counterintuitive, it was nevertheless not atypical of the radical position on slave emancipation. Moreover, Wedderburn's willingness to consider a new agenda for emancipation is less surprising in the broader political context of the period. The fraught atmosphere of the early 1830s slavery debates, bound up as they were in a series of hotly contested elections, led to a number of uncharacteristic accommodations, compromises and sudden changes of opinion. And this is especially true for leading figures in the movement for parliamentary reform. William Cobbett, for example, that kind of arch-racist figure of the radical movement, um, converted to a uh, similarly moderate anti-slavery position, albeit with dubious sincerity, during his contest against a West India merchant in Oldham, in the Oldham by-elections in 1832. And Henry Brougham, uh, the addressee of this pamphlet, uh, and a leading parliamentary abolitionist and long-standing advocate for reform from within, faced criticism during the Yorkshire elections uh, of 1830 over his own seemingly sudden volte-face on the gradualist position he had publicly advocated seven years earlier. In this environment, Wedderburn's sudden change of approach does not stand out as particularly incoherent or even that unusual. Popular radical positions on the slavery question became no simpler in the aftermath of the Baptist War. This, the, um, this rebellion involving tens of thousands of Jamaican slaves was substantially larger than those that had taken place in Demerara or Barbados, though again deaths among white planters were uh, relatively minimal. By the time uh, news of the revolt made it back to Britain, the abolition of slavery was seen by most as inevitable, and the terms of the debate were now centred on how and when emancipation could be achieved. The parliamentary abolitionists led by Broome and Thomas Fold Buxton had been pushing for immediate emancipation since um, 18, about 1830. Um, 
and as demonstrated by the massive influx of petitions to Parliament in support of immediatism, this approach clearly commanded widespread popular support. The resurgence of popular abolitionism then led to a more restrained tone uh, in depictions of violent slave uprisings. So accordingly, and in line with the radicals' new emphasis on respectability and cool rationalism, the pro-reform British press was more self-consciously even-handed in its coverage of the insurrection than it had been after either Barbados or Demerara. Bell's life in London, again, uh, summed up the populist outlook, uh, echoing uh, to an extent at least Wedderburn's commitment to treating all parties fairly uh, in the emancipation question. It is the existence of slavery of that huge volcanic mass of anger which one word can kindle into an eruption that is the cause of all the evil and that ought therefore to be removed. At the same time, we pity the West Indian, the West Indian planters from our hearts. For years they have seen their property going to decay and this blow will utterly ruin them. They have been cursed by our vexatious restrictions, extravagant governments and onerous duties by the unreformed parliament and with worse evils a reformed parliament could not possibly inflict them. In the context of slave rebellions, sympathetic depictions of the insurgent enslaved went hand-in-hand with hard-headed concern for colonial economic security. One of the effects of the March of the Mind of the 1820s, it seems, was to alter radical self-perception so as to steel them against the emotional appeals of the parliamentary immediatist position. However, equivocations over the emancipation question soon gave way even in the forum of the traditionally anti-racist Bell's life in London, to the old complaints about telescopic philanthropy that had so long characterised much of the reformist position on slavery. Needless to say, the solution finally settled upon in Parliament, including a compensation package of over £20 million to be paid out to slave owners for their loss of human property, did not meet with unqualified support from any corner of the radical movement. In June 1833... Uh, when the um, eventually successful abolition of slavery bill was being debated in Commons, Bell set out its own position on the matter, demanding that every man and woman take care not to commit injustice on his own family and against his own friends, relations and neighbours. The old notion that slave emancipation was damaging to working class interests was once again resurgent in popular reformist publications, though this time framed even more baldly. By raising the price of sugar and increasing taxes, it was claimed we are enslaving ourselves to transfer the Negroes from their masters to the government. A typical piece of doggerel written in the character of old Jack Scroggins, a supposedly representative uh, plebeian reformist character, highlighted popular discontent with the emancipation settlement. Uh, I don't have a slide for this. So. Um, and the Negroes to save, as you say, from the lash, 20 millions you voted away of our cash. Why, for objects of mercy abroad, need you roam when so little you've done for the white slaves at home? Elsewhere in the reformist popular press, maturing systems of racial classification... I am coming to, I am coming to a close now. Um, elsewhere in the reformist popular press, maturing systems of racial classification were deployed in discussions of both slave rebellion and abolitionism. The reformist daily newspaper, The Examiner, Anticipating a central thesis of later colonial-era racism, repeatedly stressed that childlike minds of black slaves prevented them from being able to appreciate or indeed manage their own freedom without further incidents of anti-white violence. 
Indeed, for some British radicals, hostility to immediate emancipation quickly turned, uh, quickly and finally turned to pro-slavery racism once the more immediate objective of uh, domestic parliamentary reform had been achieved in 1832. For example, once they entered Commons, Cobbett quickly reneged on the anti-slavery position um, that he had for a very short time espoused during the Oldham by-election. So he used this popular anti-slavery position to get elected, and then once he got into Commons, um, uh, turned his back on it. For Carlyle's part, uh, he maintained his interest in racial theory, and by 1834, he was printing pro-slavery and white paternalist tracts. The mutual enmity between the wealthy, well-to-do parliamentary abolitionists and newly respectable intellectual radicals had crystallised into a difference of opinion on the nature of humanity itself. Um, so I'll, I'll just draw this to a conclusion quickly. By the 1830s, more white, peop white British people than ever before saw black people as worth less than them. Outrage at the cost of the emancipation settlement and the birth of a novel form of working-class anti-abolitionism manifested a tendency towards racial scientific thought among radical intellectuals that had been growing since the end of the Napoleonic Wars. As Catherine Hall has demonstrated, the true architects of functional and institutional racism in the later 19th century uh, had vested interests in the expansion of empire and the redistribution of wealth uh, from investments in slavery. But the existence of working class racism as a means of popularising pseudo-scientific racist hierarchies in early 19th century British culture should warn us against pathologising racism as exclusively confined to the wealthy and powerful or indeed to the political right. Robert Wedderburn's ideological trajectory in terms of his approach to abolition illustrates how the ground of popular radical politics had shifted between the uprising in Barbados and that in Jamaica. Nevertheless, he retained his characteristic independence of thought and personal dignity throughout this period of increasing social conservatism. His consistent challenges to emergent racist discourse demonstrate that intellectual diversity, just as much as the early adoption of new ideas, lay at the heart of reforming politics in early 19th century England. Thank you.